You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Well, good morning, Mercy's Door. Again, uh, my name is Adam, lead teaching pastor here. I'm so glad that you're with us this morning. We are continuing a long journey through the Gospel account of Mark this morning. We're going to read the whole book left to right. And so uh, I'm really trying to break this up in a way where each week you can come in and receive the passage by itself. But the truth is, is that you're going to receive each of these passages in its fullness as you really enjoy and encounter the entire account left to right, which is what we're trying to do. So just real quick, obviously, that just took me like 20 minutes to read that to you, so we're going to be up here for a long time. If I give you too much recap, but just know that last week, uh, what we saw was Jesus performing an incredible miracle, okay? And so I've broken up this section of the gospel into three sections. The miracle itself, which we preached last week, the crowd's response to the miracle, which we'll see this week, and then next week, we'll look at the disciples' response to the miracle plus Jesus' teaching on account of the miracle. But first, we've got to recall the miracle because this teaching is to the crowd that, that encountered the miracle directly from Jesus' mouth. Okay, so last week, what we saw was Jesus followed by a crowd, lead them into a desolate place where he then takes a part, takes, takes a spot up on a mountain, he teaches them, and the need for food arises as the crowd is out in the wilderness, and Jesus performs a miracle where he takes the little boy's sack lunch, and he multiplies bread and fish in order to feed the multitudes, and the disciples come to him, and they reach into the basket, and each time that they reach in, there's just more. There's just more, and Jesus shows himself to be this God of abundance, and he feeds the multitudes. And then he retreats, and he goes across the Sea of Capernaum. It says that he walked on water while his disciples rode against a storm to get there, that he goes and he miraculously delivers his disciples over to the other side, and the crowd now this morning is following him. So we're dealing with the same group of people from last week. They've just eaten multiplied bread, and they're seeking out Jesus to just, they want to stay with him, and they want to talk to him. They want to ask him questions, right? But there were themes last week. We preached a long time last week, and there were themes last week that I left unpreached, and I said that we would talk about them this week because we want to let Jesus talk to us about them himself. And last week, the passage kind of ended with the crowds. It says that in verse 15 of last week's passage that Jesus perceived in himself that the crowds were going to take him by force to make him king, and it was for this reason that he withdrew to, to be on his own, to be with the Father, Right? So in response to last week, the crowd wanted to grab him, okay? And so Jesus fled. And then the crowd hunts him down on the other side of the Sea of Capernaum. So we need that context in order to really understand Jesus' teaching today, okay? But there are some themes that we talked about briefly last week that we know are true because the people see it themselves this week. And I want to just set it up as context, okay? So this setting of the bread multiplication that happened a couple of weeks, or that, that happened yesterday when I preached it last week, was during the Passover. That's how the passage opens. It says it was now the Passover, the feast was at hand, and then Jesus does this miracle. So the Passover, as you guys know it, from Exodus, the, the people of God, the Hebrews, were in Egyptian captivity, and God himself does a great work to liberate them from Egyptian captivity, from slavery, right? And the last miracle that he does, he sends the destroyer through the lands in Egypt in order to do business and, and, and to bring judgment upon the people who were holding his people captive. Now, the only way that the people could be liberated from their captivity was if they obeyed God, who told them to go and to take a spotless sacrificial lamb and to kill it 
and to eat it and to take its blood and to put it on the doorpost of their homes that when the destroyers came through, if they saw the blood of a substitute, they skipped over the home and the destroyer would pass over the people of God in order to liberate them. And then we see that as God leads them out of Egypt after the destroyers pass through, that they, get, they come up against the Red Sea and they can't flee on their own. And so God then does a second miracle by the staff of Moses where he parts the Red Sea and they walk through on dry land. And then he leads them for 40 years through the wilderness while he prepares a place for them, right? A place, a promised land where they will be able to dwell and prosper, right? And for 40 years, they're following this pillar of cloud and smoke through the wilderness. And naturally, you're in the desert, there were times when they were unable to eat. And so this is where Jesus made manna to fall from heaven in order to feed the people, right? Why are we talking about this in the book of John? Because during the Passover, while the people, as a ceremony of remembrance, are looking back at these events and remembering the sacrificial lamb that that allowed for the destroyer to pass over them, while they are remembering that meal, while they are remembering walking across the sea at the Red Sea when it was split in order that they could pass through on dry land, while they are thinking about these things being fed from heaven, Jesus mimics all of these things. He's doing them on purpose. He leads a crowd through the desert into a desolate place where there is no food, and then he causes food to arrive miraculously. And then he passes over the sea in a miraculous way, the same way that the people were allowed to pass over a sea in a miraculous way. He's reenacting events from the Exodus story in order that he can show himself to be the God of the Exodus. He's doing this specifically for the Jewish people. He did it during the Passover on purpose, okay? And so he's setting all of this up, this whole ordeal he has set up so that he can create context for what he's going to say this morning, okay? So we wouldn't want to miss it. You're probably going to want to spend more time than the four minutes I just gave it to really think about all of the parallels that Jesus went to great effort to do in order to show himself to the people that he is the very God of the Passover that they were celebrating during this time. And then he opens up the teaching like this. The day goes, it's the next day, verse 22. On the very next day, The crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they'd eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So then the the crowd saw that Jesus was not there or his disciples. They themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? So setting it up, the disciples left and the the crowd saw there was only one boat there at the time. So he multiplies the loaves and the fish, he feeds them all, and then the disciples get on the only boat that there is to cross over to Capernaum. They see that Jesus wasn't on the boat with them, and they're like, thinking, okay, what we're going to do is when the next boats come through from Tiberias, we're going to get on those boats and follow the disciples. Since Jesus wasn't with them, they must be going ahead of him. He must be on foot. Right, that would be your natural conclusion. Jesus must be walking along the sea, which means if we hop on these boats, we're going to beat him there. So when they get there and they see that Jesus is already there, they're amazed. And they say to him, when they found him on the other side of the sea, Rabbi, when did you come here? they they're wrestling here because they are getting a sneak peek at a miracle that the disciples, the inner circle, got to see firsthand. They didn't see Jesus walk on the water. All they see is that Jesus somehow beat them to the other side of the sea, even though he never got in a boat. And so they're marveling at this. 
and they ask him a question. Jesus, when did you get here? And Jesus answers them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So the crowd eats their fill, they cross over to the other side of the sea, they find Jesus in Capernaum, and they're marveling. They're asking him, how did you do this, man? This is, how did you get here? We saw the boat. How did you, this is so cool. And Jesus will not be hyped in this way. Instead, neglecting to answer their question, he says to them, you're not seeking me because you saw signs. Don't talk to me about signs. You're talking to me you're seeking me because you ate your fill of the loaves. Because you ate your fill of the loaves. And when I read this sentence, the first kind of major point of this morning's message comes to me, and it's this, that there's a major difference between seeking Jesus as your treasure and seeking Jesus in order to acquire some lesser pleasure. Okay, what, the, what Jesus is saying to his disciples, or not to the disciples, to the crowd here, is that you're not seeking me for my sake. It's not because you've seen who I am and you're marveling at it. It's because you've seen what I can do and you're marveling at that. Again, I don't want us to forget that last week we ended with they wanted to seize Jesus. What he's saying to the crowd is, you just want more bread. You just want more bread. Jesus is saying to the crowd, you just want more bread. Now, over the last several days, my wife has been up in Chicago uh, with her sister. She's planning her wedding in September. She's the uh, maid of honor, and so lots of responsibility there. And so I've been single-dadding it for several days, so you'll forgive me if some of the illustrations that come to my mind today are in the vein of a child. But do you guys know the story of Rumpelstiltskin? Yeah? This is like what I see in my mind, right? They see that Jesus can multiply the loaves and the fish, and immediately what they think to themselves is, this is useful. Let's grab a hold of this guy. They wanted to seize him. It says that they wanted to take him by force in order to make him king, not because they saw him as God, but because he was able to multiply food. And if you can multiply food, you're a really useful king. And so they want to take him by force to make him king. It makes me think of this imp Rumpelstiltskin, right? He gives this woman the power to spin straw into gold, and then and giving her that gift, she becomes like a captive to that gift and has to keep spinning the straw into gold in order to satisfy everybody who wants the gold, right? But then he says that I'll only release you from the consequence of this if you could say my name three times, right? They pulled a Rumpelstiltskin on Jesus is what they wanted. They wanted to take him and make him a king in order that they can have somebody who represents them, who can feed them always, just a guy who can make bread is going to be really useful. You've got to also remember that they were under Roman oppression, okay? Which means that to, for a mob of 5,000 people to think to themselves, let's grab this guy and make him our king is to invite the wrath of the emperor against them. So they did see him rightly as somebody who could stand in for them in the event that that happened, like, the, like that, that this guy had power. But they were putting their hope in the fact that if we make this guy our king, he's going to be able to do our bidding for us against the Romans. He's going to be able to feed us. He's, going to, he's, just, he's super powerful. We should make him a king. And Jesus is saying, you don't make me king. I am a king. That's kind of how we ended up last week. Well, this week he says it again. He says that you're not seeking me because you saw the signs. Instead, it's because you ate your fill of the loaves. 
in church this morning, we have to reckon with whether or not Jesus is addressing us when he says these things. When we seek Jesus, are we seeking him on account of the loaves, or are we seeking him on account of who he is? On account of who he is. And I know we all know what the right answer to that question is, but if I think that we, it's, it's necessary for us to make a real accounting of our lives and the way that we interact with Jesus in order to give an honest answer and a full answer to this question. Do we seek Jesus on account of the loaves? Is it because we ate our fill? Because there are a lot of benefits to Jesus, church. There are a lot of things that we can gain from Jesus, right? From associating with power, from associating with a guy who can perform miracles, right? And I don't want to be petty. I've pointed this out before, but only because culturally it's, it's, it's symbolic of a mindset. You see like these signs that we like to put up in our coffee shops. I have so like half the houses in the church, right? Like where we'll say, I just need a little bit of Jesus or a little bit of coffee and a whole lot of Jesus, right? That by itself, it's fine. It's quippy, right? But it's indicative of a mindset that is pervasive in our culture today that Jesus is an add-on to a list of things that we need for comfort. That as long as I've got coffee in Jesus or as long as I've got bread and the one who can make the bread, then I'm good, right? As long as I've got comfort and the one who can give me comfort when I'm uncomfortable, then I'm good. That somehow, if I need Jesus plus, then primarily what I need Jesus for is to protect or to give me the second thing, the other things. And we reduce Jesus to useful. We reduce Jesus to somebody who can give us the things we really treasure. And we do do it all the time. In a lot of different ways, we do this. We come to Jesus only once we've tried everything else in order to get the thing that we really want. And then when we come to him, we don't call on him to receive him. We call on him as our last-ditch effort to still to get the thing that we want. God, I've tried everything in order to get this promotion. I was passed over. Jesus, will you please give me this promotion? And our prayer life looks a lot like Jesus is subservient to our will. That we bring to God not just the desires of our heart, which you're welcome to do, not saying that you're not, but hear what I am saying, that we think of Jesus as a primary function that he plays in our life is to hear our will and to carry it out for us. That he's useful and that he has the power to give us what we are unable to will ourselves. And Jesus says, I, don't, I won't be approached this way. He says, you are not seeking me because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Well, regarding these signs, he has rebuked several crowds before already in this passage where he says that he will not be pursued because of the signs either. There are several people who have come to him because they did see the signs, and on account of the signs, they come and they're worshiping him. He says, you're only worshiping me on account of the signs. These guys come and he says, you're not coming to me on account of the signs. You're coming to me because you had your fill of the loaves. And so we don't want to read this as come to him on account of the signs either. But he says next that the signs serve a purpose. He says, verse 27, do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. 
Now this sentence, God the Father has set his seal, we should see it as a stamp of approval. When Jesus is talking about God the Father setting his seal upon him, what he's saying is that my signs serve to signify and certify that I am the sent one of God, that I am the Messiah. When the Father sets his seal upon me, all of these signs and wonders and miracles serve one chief purpose to testify to you who exactly I am, who I am. I am the one that the Lord has sent into the world. I am the Savior. I am the Messiah. He says, you're working for food that perishes, not for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And so guys, I want you to hear this this morning, that when Jesus talks about the seal of the Father being upon him, he is giving us a framework to think about all of our favorite things about him. That when we look at these stories and we love that Jesus shows himself to be provider, the one who can multiply the loaves, when we see him healing, when we see him raising the dead, when we see him giving sight to the blind, restoring hearing to the deaf, when we see him doing any of the signs and wonders that he does, they all serve a purpose. These are the seal of the Father upon him. It is the stamp that says this is, in fact, the Son of God. And so it is tragic if we look at the wonderful things about Jesus and we marvel at them and we don't actually trace the line and actually see the one who is doing these miracles and what they actually mean about him, what they actually tell us about him, what he is communicating to us about him. Very secondarily, I want you guys to think about the way that this reads. It's, it, it, it's almost boring when you change the central character from Jesus to the recipient of the good works of Jesus. It says that when other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread, that's how they recount that passage from last week. It goes from the place where Jesus multiplied the bread to the place where they had eaten the bread. And that is what made multiplying the bread miraculous, is that they had eaten bread in a place where there was no bread to be eaten. But still, when we talk about the work of Jesus in such a way where we make ourselves the central character, it ends up that I ate bread, not Jesus multiplied bread miraculously. I got the promotion, not Jesus provided lavishly. So it matters. It matters how we orient and understand what Jesus is doing and what he's showing us about himself when he does it. But this is how he says it. Listen closely. You're working for the food that perishes, and they worked for it. They were, it was a crowd who hijacked some boats from Tiberias and took them across the sea. They didn't hijack them, but they, t- they take the boats across the sea of Tiberias looking for Jesus. They're working for food that perishes. They got their sight on a guy who can make bread. They're chasing a baker here. They've reduced Jesus to an awesome baker here, and they are working for it, for bread. He says, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will what? Give, give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And this is so big, church, Jesus is saying to the crowds, you are working for that which perishes, when what will never perish, eternal life, is available to you. And this eternal life, the bread of life, the Son of Man will give to you. 
that this is a gift that is given to you, not earned, not worked for, right? It's, it's Titus 3, but when, when, when uh, God our Savior uh, came, he saved us not due to works uh, done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. He says that what you really need, you don't actually have to work for at all. He says, the Son of Man will give it to you, the food that endures to eternal life. And eternal life being a gift is probably the hardest thing for the church, for anybody to really believe. And we're going to see that in their response, right? He says to them, the food that endures to eternal life, the Son of Man will give to you. And their response is, what must we do to be doing the works of God? He had just said to them in no uncertain terms, I give it to you, and the next thing they say is, what must we do? And this is you and me. In every way, this is you and me. No matter how many times I preach this at Mercy's Door, no matter how many times we talk about it in our gospel communities, no matter how many times we read it in our Bible, every time that we come up against the radical truth that Jesus Christ, by the mercy within him, just gives us eternal life as a free gift from God, our next instinctive response is, all right, so what do I got to do? What do I got to do? And there's a reason for that. From birth, our entire lives are oriented around this truth. And that's why Jesus is going to be so tender about it in a moment. But the truth is, is that we, in every other relationship that we have, at least in some part, we receive approval, acceptance, We are brought in and not cast out on the basis of our merit. That as long as we are useful, as long as we are helpful, as long as we are efficient, as long as we are beautiful, as long as we are powerful, as long as we have something to contribute, as long as in some way I'm necessary, I have approval and acceptance from almost every other relationship that you can think of in this life. And so when Jesus says that eternal life is a gift from the Son of Man, This is an entirely new category for his hearers, whose instinctive response is, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answers them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. They say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And then he says, this is the work of God, that you believe in and him who he has sent. He moves the work off of the people, puts it back where it belongs on God, and says that the work of God is that you would not work, but would believe. He's talking about faith being a gift. Faith being a gift. This is, this is Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 2, 8 to 9. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and it is given to you as a gift. So what, is, what do we do to be doing the work of God? He answers back, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. But listen to their response. And so they say to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? 
What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Remember who we're talking about. This is the crowd who just got their sign. He just multiplied the bread for them. But remember, he already told them why they were coming. He said, you are seeking me out, not because of the signs, but because you had your fill of the loaves. They came to him again wanting bread. We don't want to miss this again. So here's the next kid thing. We've been watching Winnie the Pooh. Anybody seen Winnie the Pooh? First one. There's this scene in the beginning of the movie where Winnie the Pooh sees a beehive up at the top of a tree and he wants honey from it. And so he tries climbing it unsuccessfully. And then Christopher Robin comes along with a blue balloon. And he says to Christopher Robin, you wouldn't by chance happen to have something resembling a blue balloon, would you? And Christopher Robin's like, oh, no, actually I do. And he hands him it and he floats up and he gets the honey, right? This is exactly who I see. I see, them, I see the crowd as Winnie the Pooh this morning. As they say to Jesus, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Might you remember that our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness? As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They're telling him which miracle they would like for him to do to prove himself. That's all they're doing here. It's all they're, they're just hungry. And they want him to do the bread thing again. And so Jesus says, so first of all, you gotta, I'll get to what Jesus says to them in a second, but you got to see it. What they're holding out to him as a carrot, what they're, what they're thinking in this moment, which is what we tend to believe, is that their faith is a gift that they give to him, that he earns from them by showing or proving himself to them in some way that they want him to show himself to them or prove himself to them. So they, they hold their, their faith as a gift that they offer to him, and they are completely failing to see that their faith is a gift given to them from him, and that he doesn't, he's not their trick pony, right? But they say to him exactly what he said they came for. He said, you came because you had your fill of the loaves. They say, show us a sign, give us more bread. And Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. When my father was alive, he was, a, he was a truck driver, and he and I were mostly estranged for most of my life and lived in separate states, and um, I remember one morning in my early 20s, um, I was driving into work, and I saw this beautiful sunrise, and I just thought to myself in the spirit that my father, who is a trucker, is probably seeing this same sunrise wherever he is, and so I decided to shoot him a text. And I say to him something to the effect of, I saw the sunrise this morning. It's incredible. I'm pretty sure you could probably see it too right now. Take a peek if you get a second. What I'm hearing in my head this morning as I drive into work is that I need only to look at my own hand to know that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And I just pray that as you look at this sunrise this morning that you will behold the goodness of God. And he calls me back 30 seconds later. We hadn't spoken in a long time. He's crying. And he says, you know, 10 minutes ago, I bought a lottery ticket. And I said to God, if you make these the winning numbers, you have to know my dad. If you make these the winning numbers, I will be yours the rest of my life. I will, you are real. 
and I will follow you forever. But if you don't, then once and for all, I will know that you're not real and that I'm free to just put you out of my mind. And I can hear him laughing at me right now. He says to me that I thought I needed winning lottery ticket numbers from him, and he knew all I needed was a text from my son and a beautiful sunrise. He's crying, right? It's a beautiful moment. And later that year, when he was going through his second divorce and he was just wrecked by that, he calls me and he says, I remembered that text that you sent me and that I knew that all I needed was to see a sunrise and I needed you to remind me. And I'm like, Dad, you didn't need to see a sunrise. You needed the risen sun. And I talked to him about Jesus and he was just wrecked, right? Here they are testing him, and they are saying to him, we need bread. If you'll do the bread thing, you can have my faith. Like, as if their faith is something that they can dangle in front of Jesus and make him earn it. And what Jesus is saying is, I don't need your faith. You need me. You need me. In fact, you're counting on me for your faith. And, and, and so he, he, he just doesn't mess with them when they talk about the manna. But instead he says to them, it wasn't Moses who gave you that bread from heaven. It was my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And this seems like a sincere response. He says, they ask him for bread. He says, that bread wasn't from Moses. It was from my father. My father sends true bread and it will nourish you forever. And they want that bread. They're hungry. Give us this bread always. But they're still thinking in terms of seizing him to be their king. The whole point originally was let's track down Jesus because he can make bread. And he just said that his father can give us bread always. And they're still thinking in terms of a bread factory. Just, he can give us bread always, literally just feed us bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven." So in just one paragraph of, 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 of speaking, they've gone from, sir, give us this bread always, until they realize that this bread that he was talking about was himself, and then they quickly move to grumbling about him. And this is often what the faith looks like that sprouts up quickly and then is fizzled out. It's when you go to Jesus wanting him to be something that you define, but not wanting him to be who he is or to be what he is or to offer to you what he's actually offering so they say to us, give us this bread. He says, it's me. They say, well, I don't want that. I want the barley loaves. I want the barley loaves. 
and we need to hear this, that to prefer Moses, is how I wrote it, to prefer Moses is to prefer death. To want Jesus to carry out in himself the old miracles that were all a foreshadowing to him is to prefer death. To say, Jesus, I would settle for you to just be a prophet is to prefer death. I would prefer you to just be a miracle worker is to prefer death. He's going to tell them, your, fa- your fathers who ate the manna in the wilderness died. I'm offering you breath or, or bread that will give you the breath of life. So why won't they come to him? He answers that question. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you, you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. This is a hard truth, and it's also a very comforting truth. The bread of life is standing in front of a hungry people, and they will not take and eat. And he answers the question as to why. He says, I tell you, you've seen me, and you do not believe, but all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Church, your ability to come to Christ as we've already talked about this morning, is given to you by the Father. All who the Father gives to the Son will come to him, is what Jesus says. And the church debates this, and they like to debate it when it comes from the mouths of the apostles, but that is just as much authority, but we'll leave that aside for a minute, because this is Jesus himself talking about himself. We have to let him speak on his own behalf here. He says, you're looking at me, and you won't believe but all those who the Father has given to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And this was a central truth for my father. My father was emancipated at 15. He had a really hard life. He, he lived a life that most of us have lived, where people have testified to us in various ways that when you need them, you can't be certain that they will be there, that, that if you're the only person you can really depend on in this life is you, and so he's radically independent, right? And, and, and kind of built his life in such a way to try not to need other people, right? We, this is why we are so radical at Mercy's Door about simplifying ministry to really being known. That, like, we know how easy it is in our culture to flee from community and to cling to independence because we don't want to be truly vulnerable because the world has told us that to open yourself up is to open yourself up to being wounded because people suck and the Lord doesn't, Right? My father believed this. And he needed to see a God who would never cast him out. And this morning, I think that we all need to see a Jesus who will never cast us out, but we just can't get to that place where we really believe in the eternal security of our position with Jesus unless we understand how it came to be that we became his possession in the first place. Because if it is that you earned your right standing with Jesus, then you've got to keep it. You've got to maintain it. If it is that there was something about you that made you worthy of being adopted into the family of God, then you need to remain worthy. 
If, there were, if there's some skill that he needs for his kingdom, then if you become less effective in that skill, he might drop you. We have to understand that the whole mechanism used to bring you to Jesus is that the Father gave you to him as a gift. In our tradition, we, call, we, we express this in terms of regeneration preceding faith. That you were dead in the trespasses in which you once walked, and the Father brought you alive again and gave you, as a, as a heart of stone made flesh, placed a gift of faith within you, and necessarily you came to Jesus. This is what Jesus is talking about here. All that the Father gives me will come to me. So when they say, what sign do you do? Do this and we'll believe you. Just obey us and we'll believe you. He has no concern for even answering them. He says, I'm not worried about that. Everyone who the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. These go hand in hand. Your security in the hand of Christ comes from the fact that you did not earn your right standing with him in the first place. You were bought with a price. You were a gift to him from the Father. For I've come down from heaven, verse 38, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but I will raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So while some of us are still on the outside looking in who are stand opposed to God because we have not received grace, we have not received faith, and we are trying by our good works to earn the favor of the Father, that's some of us. Others of us have been adopted in, and we just don't believe that we're adopted. We believe that there was some combination at work that brought us into favor with God, and so we're still wearing ourselves out as if we are, we, it's our responsibility to hold on to our position with God. And it's nonsense. My, you know, I adopted my oldest son. And when we were navigating the early days of our relationship, he really wrestled with this because, again, we're, talk, we're, we're doing real talk this morning. He had lived a life where men didn't stick around. And so the piece of paper didn't mean a lot to him. He was a kid, Right? He didn't necessarily need just legal proof that he now belonged to me and that wasn't based on his performance or anything like that. He needed to see the tender love of a father that was unwavering, right? But one of my favorite things about the adoption process is that when you complete it, a new birth certificate comes in the mail. I didn't know that when I adopted him. But they send you a new birth certificate in the mail and they retrodate his name so that on the birth certificate, it's like you were there, always there. And that's what it means to be invited into a brand new identity that has been purchased for you. It's not just from this point forward, you belong to me. It's as if you've only ever and have always belonged to me. And so while the document isn't what helped him to believe that, it certainly helps to look at it and to say, Jesus, it's like the old me doesn't even exist anymore. That's what Jesus invites us into. And yet they grumbled about him. 
because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. Verse 42, they said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, no, do not grumble about among yourselves. He doubles down here. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus says, everyone who comes to me, I will not cast out. Everyone who comes to me will return, will receive eternal life. Who will come to me? The ones who the Father gives to me. They will come. He says it as a declarative. Those who the Father gives to me will come, and they will not be cast out. Well, okay. But on the other side of that coin, he also says that you can't come to him unless the Father who sent me draws you. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And draws is a terrible translation here. It comes from the Greek word helko, which means literally to drag. And you use this word when you're talking about hooking up a carriage to an ox or a plow to an ox or drawing water from a well. No one comes to me unless the Father drags him is the better translation here. But the thing is, is that we want to make it sound like the Father woos him or the Father allures to him. But an ox does not lure the plow behind him or woo the plow behind him. And a horse does not woo the carriage that is attached to him. He carries it. He hauls it. He takes the burden upon himself and he takes it from point A to point B. You don't call into the well, come to me water. You drop in the bucket and you drag it out. He says, nobody comes to me unless the Father reaches in and takes the dead you and brings you, drags you into new life. But whenever he does that, you will have new life. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven, and if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son and the, of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So I'm going to save it for next week, the implications of what he just said, but I will say that when I preached those words this morning, this is like the passage of the Bible, that like if this is like your first time and you're like new to Christianity, you might not come back, right? Like, 
they're going to, the next week, we're going to look at how the disciples respond, but they're going to say, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? That's the next sentence of this passage, right? And later on in the next passage, we're going to find that many people stopped following him after he said this, okay? And so I'm not blind to what I just said, what I just quoted Jesus saying, but he said, you got to eat me and you got to drink me. And the people respond like you, might res- like you might expect. But the truth is the fact that you are hearing me sit, quote this from Jesus and you're not walking out right now is a testimony to what Jesus has just said, that all who the Father has given to him will come to him. The fact that you can hear this and bear it and hear it and understand what he's saying is a gift of, to you of grace. This is an indication that you have been given the grace of faith. But what we want to see is that Jesus does not ever call us into a blind faith. He calls us into an experiential faith. He doesn't just say that you need to believe, like believing is something that we do up here. He says you must eat of me and you must drink of me. He offers himself as the very seal and substance of the new covenant that he is offering to us. Jesus Christ was going to allow himself to be crucified on a Roman cross, buried, and three days later take up his life again in order to seal the covenant that he bought with his own body and his own blood. That's what he's talking about here, that he is the bread of life. And the truth is, is a lot of us, we spend a lot of our time thinking about Jesus, but not tasting and seeing Jesus. We act like our faith or Christianity is something that we primarily do up here. It's purely academic. I read this and I seek to understand it. But Jesus says, take and eat, that you must take me in. And that's entirely different than just thinking about him. But he says that those who do, where he, when he's in you and you're in him, that we are invited into eternal life. Eternal life. Mercy's door. The truth is, is that if we get away from this, and we do, we avoid passages like this, but if we get away from this, we can make Christianity a club. It's just some things that we do. We show up at this pace, then we go to gospel community. When we talk about Jesus, we talk about him primarily as a bread maker, right, or as somebody who can, who can meet some needs for you or whatever. But he says he doesn't want any of that. What Jesus is talking about here, he knows it's going to thin the crowds. He knows that all that will be left are those who the Father gave to him, right? But he doesn't mince words anyway because he knows that all of those who the Lord is bringing to life will respond to this gospel. And I want to just, I know this isn't the point of the message, but it's, it's so heavy on my heart this morning. If we as a church depart from this, if we won't talk to others in these terms, then we are not even doing the work of the church to actually spread the gospel, okay? The message of Jesus Christ is not primarily that he could improve your life. The message of Jesus Christ is not primarily that he's a good teacher, not that he's a miracle worker, not that he's a good add-on to other good things in your life. It's none of that. It's that those who have tasted his body and drank his blood have eternal life. 
And no matter how you mince it, no matter how you say it, we're so terrified sometimes of spreading the gospel because we're not going to have the words. If I were to say it the wrong way, then the crowds would leave and they wouldn't, and they wouldn't come or whatever. Jesus said it in about the strangest and most offensive way that you can say it with no regard for whether or not the crowds thinned or the crowds grew because he had confidence that it was going to be by the will of the Father that those who heard would have new life. So you can go say it weird is what I'm saying. You can say hard things if you believe that we don't mentally ascend to these truths, but that God the Father gives people to his Son as a gift. In conclusion this morning, next week we're going to see how the disciples respond. Today we see how the crowds respond. And the truth is only God knows really whether or not you are meant to be counted among the disciples or among the crowd. Only the Lord knows this. But a good test of this is, is your security with God? Is your status before him? Is your standing with him based on your merit or on the merit of the blood and the body broken for you in Christ? This is it. This is the charge that Jesus gives the crowd. And so it's the charge that I offer to you this morning from his very mouth, that you cannot be saved. You cannot come to him. You cannot respond to him unless the Father puts new life in you And if he does, then you will. And if that's what he's doing this morning, then you can and you will. And so I want to invite you into it. And for those of you who are among the disciples, who understand these to be the words of life, I want to invite you into what Jesus assures you this morning. It's what I needed to hear the most, and so I'm trusting that there's someone else who needed to hear it too. That you have eternal security in the hand of God. Please look at me. He will not lose a one. You're not going to mess this up. You cannot wriggle free from your adoption. He has renamed you. He has set his seal upon you. He has made you his own. You are his possession. He will not let you go. This is your promise. If you belong to him. And the invitation that Jesus makes is, if you don't, what work must you do? See the Son and believe. Let's take a moment this morning and pray and reconcile with God who who we are as he speaks to us in this passage. And then let's take whatever he says to us and let's give it away to one another and then to our community. Let's pray.